All right, good morning. Uh, it's, it's preaching time now. If, uh, if we haven't met, my name's Tony. I'm one of the pastors here at Tabor. And most of the year, you're going to hear me up here. I'll be doing the preaching. And uh, so, welcome. also want to say hey to everybody who's joining us on Facebook this morning. We're really glad that you're with us. We know that you'll probably watch three or four times online before you'd ever consider joining us in person. We're fine with that. That's good. Uh, We do want you to know if you have any questions about Tabor, about something you hear in a sermon, feel free to send us a Facebook message. We'll be happy to work through that with you, and we look forward to when we get to meet in person. I want to start with a game this morning, whether you're online or here in person. We're going to play a game called Two Kinds of People in the World, and here's how you play. I'm going to show you two different images about, uh, that represent two different ways that people go about common tasks or uh, things that we take, undertake in life, and uh, I want you to just shout out to me which one you mo- more closely identify with. So there are two kinds of people in the world. Here's the first one. When you set an alarm, do you set one and get up when it goes off? Or do you set three or four different alarms and snooze all of them? Which one do you do? Three or four, all right. A couple of different ideas. There's two kinds of people in this room, all right? Very good. How about this one? When you read a book, do you fold down a corner of the page or do you do what the Lord commanded us to and use a bookmark? (laughs) Two kinds of people in this room. (laughs) When you make a sandwich, when you make a sandwich, do you cut it in half straight across or do you go diagonal? Yes. Absolutely. So, okay, let's clear the air here because James brings up a good point. So I I cut diagonal, but the only time I cut a sandwich in half is when it's grilled cheese and I need to be able to dip it in the tomato soup. Okay, so that's the only time you cut a sandwich in half, but when you do, you got to cut diagonal. Just, okay, very good. I'm glad we're all on the same page there. Thank you. There are not two kinds of people in this room with this one. The last one, and this is really important. This is a really important one. When you eat a chocolate bar, do you break off a piece or do you commit great sin in the eyes of the Lord? (laughs) Listen, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who think they'll never be good enough and people who know they're good enough and they just don't want to be bothered by those poor souls in the first group. Two kinds of people in the world, and in John chapter 7, Jesus is talking to both of them. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 7. We'll start in verse 1. Jesus says this, After this, uh, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death, but soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. And Jesus' brother said to him, Leave here. Go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Jesus replied, now's not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You, you go on. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come after saying these things. Jesus remained in Galilee. So we're going to stop here for just a minute. Uh, We're going to point out a few things that are going to matter as we 
continue on through this text. First of all, this is the festival of shelters. You've probably heard it called the, the festival of tabernacles before. And uh, here's, here's what it is. This is one of the festivals that God commanded the Israelites to celebrate on a yearly basis. And what they were remembering was the work that God had done in providing for them while they were in the wilderness. They needed provision. They were wandering around the wilderness and they didn't have food. They didn't have water. And God provided manna from heaven. He provided water from rock. And God at every juncture and in every way provided for the needs of the people. And the festival of shelters was about remembering what God had done. And so if I were to summarize shelters, here's what I would say. The festival of shelters was about looking back in reverence so that you could look forward in confidence. You look back in reverence so that you can look forward in confidence. If you remember what God has done in your life, you will be confident about what God can do in your current situation or circumstances. This is a big deal in the Jewish world. It's a big deal in the Jewish world. And because of that, Jesus' brothers say, hey, Jesus, if you are going to be a big-time preacher, if you are going to be a big-time religious leader, you have got to go to Jerusalem for the festival of shelters. Because if you want to preach on the biggest stage, you've got to go to the biggest stage. And I realize that they were, in all likelihood, making fun of him. They didn't think Jesus was a big-time religious leader. They thought he was a little crazy. And so they were giving him a hard time. But Jesus didn't let that bother him. Well, here's what he said. He said, it's, it's not my time. You guys go anytime you want, but my time has not yet come. Now understand, every time Jesus says, my time, Every time he talks about this idea of my time in the Gospel of John, he's referring to the time of his death. My time has not yet come. We can go back to John chapter 2, this wedding at Cana. Uh, his mom comes up to him and says, Jesus, they, they've run out of wine. Can you help? Can you do something? Jesus says to her, my time has not yet come. That's a little awkward in that context. I can't give you more wine. It's not time for me to die. But but every time in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. He's talking about the time of his death. But here's what I want you to think about. If you can say that your time hasn't come, you're aware that you do have a time. That there is a time that will come. And I think it's important for all of us to realize that we have a time. Each of us has a time. We don't know what it is. And I don't want to minimize this idea of death or how Jesus thought about death. It's a scary thing, but Jesus wasn't scared of death in the same way that we are. He, he had this unimaginable pain to endure. He knew that his death was going to be a, a torture at the hands of an oppressive government, but he had such a strong relationship with God that he was confident in what death would bring him. For us, we don't worry about being tortured to death. We do worry about what death holds for us. We do worry about what will happen on the other side of death, but understand that Jesus' mission in the arena of life was to enable us to have the same relationship with God that he has. 
so that we could be so confident in our relationship with God that we would not fear death. He came to give us the same relationship with God that he has. I was reading in the Gospel of Mark this morning, and it was talking about the baptism of Jesus. And when Jesus was baptized, the text records that the skies opened up and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love dearly, who brings me great joy. And what I need you to understand is that Jesus came to give you the same relationship with God that he has. So that when he looks at you, he will say, this is my son who brings me great joy. This is my daughter who brings me great joy. Jesus stepped into the arena of life to give us the same joyful, loving relationship with the Father that he has so that death will have no sting, so that death will have no victory, so that death will hold no fear over us. Back to the text. After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. No, I'm sorry. This is not where I want to be at. This is where I want to be at. Verse 10. After his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly. He was staying out of public view. And the Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival and they kept asking if anybody had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some argued, he's a good man. Others said he is, he's nothing but a fraud, he deceives people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. Then midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach, and the people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked. So Jesus lets his brothers get out a little way ahead of him. He says, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go. You guys go ahead, I'm not going to go. And Jesus lets his brothers get out a little way ahead of him. And then he goes to Jerusalem for the Festival of Shelters. He stays incognito. He probably has a cloak over his head, stays in the shadows, just kind of listening and observing. Then halfway through this week-long festival, Jesus gets up and he starts to teach. And the people were surprised when they heard him. They said, how does this man know so much when he hasn't even been trained. Now, if we look at that, our our first thought might be, that's kind of an insulting question, isn't it? But this guy hasn't even been trained. It's not an insult. In fact, the opposite's true. They're acknowledging that what Jesus is saying makes sense. They're acknowledging that Jesus is somebody worth listening to. They're acknowledging that what Jesus says holds water, and they're just a little surprised because he doesn't have the pedigree that they've come to expect from their religious leaders. It's not an insulting question at all. In fact, it's a great compliment. So Jesus tells them, my message, it's not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anybody who wants to do the will of God knows whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves. But a person who seeks to honor the one who sent him speaks truth, not lies. Now this is subtle, but Jesus is beginning to address those people who know that they're good enough for God. He's beginning to address those people who know they're good enough from God and don't want to be bothered by those poor and marginalized people who are not good enough. And here's here's what he says. He says, my message is not my own. 
It comes from God who sent me. Anybody who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. And if we focus in on that last part, they'll know if my teaching comes from God or is merely my own. Here's here's what Jesus is saying. If your motives are pure, you'll be able to discern if I'm the real deal. Put that into a principle that Jesus is teaching here. Selfish motives blind us to the will of God. Selfish motives blind us to the will of God. The religious leaders, they've learned the words of the Bible. What they haven't learned is the heart of God. And they've learned to enjoy their titles and the respect that they get and the perks of their job. And frankly, I can't fault them for that. They've learned to appreciate their lifestyle. They've learned to appreciate the way that people look at them and think about them and the perks of their job. And that's all well and good. The problem is, the problem is that when the will of God begins to threaten their lifestyles, they denied the will of God. That's when the problem starts. And when the will of God threatened their lifestyle, they denied the will of God. So there's a pastor and uh, he wanted to take a Sunday off. He was tired. He was exhausted with the work of ministry, and he just wanted to take a Sunday off. And so he did what any pastor would do. He faked being sick. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So he fakes being sick, and, uh, and he, he arranges for one of the associate pastors to preach the sermon that Sunday, and he heads off to the golf course. And he goes to the golf course like, an hour away. I mean, it can't be too obvious. He can't go to the one in his own town. So he goes to a golf course like an hour away, and uh, he gets his tee time, and he tees up on the first hole, and he thinks, man. Now, let, let me set the stage just a little bit. Most pastors like to golf, and most pastors, I'm just going to let you in on this, are terrible golfers. I mean, just bless their little hearts. They're terrible. At, and I'm speaking from experience here, Okay. This, I, I know what I'm talking about because I'm a terrible golfer. I enjoy the sport. I don't call it golf. I call it find the ball. But uh, I enjoy golf. I'm bad at it. But, and, and most pastors are bad at golf. So this, uh, that's the stage we're going to set here. We'll move on. He tees up, first hole. He's, man, one of the better shots I've hit in my life. Right in the middle of the fairway. Right in the middle of the fairway. He goes, this is great. He ends up birdieing the first hole. He's heard of birdies before. He's never done that. Right? He's a pastor. He's not good at golf. And, and so he goes up to the second hole. Same thing. He birdies it. He's playing the best round of golf of his life. He's birdie and birdie and birdie and par, par, birdie, birdie, par. And he gets to hole 17. 458-yard par 5 with a dog leg right. Great shot. He ends up hitting an eagle. First time in his life he's ever eagled a hole. Playing the best round of golf of his life. Hole number 18, most challenging hole on the course. 155-yard par three over a lake, and the green slopes back down towards the water. He hits his shot. I just do what I think I did. He rushes over and he checks. Sure enough, he's got a hole in one. He plays the best round of golf of his life. He's 11 under par. That's incredible. That's not pastor good, that's PGA Tour good. And so God and the angel Gabriel are watching from heaven. And Gabriel says, God, I don't get it. You know that this guy faked being sick to go play golf today, right? Yeah. God, you know that he lied 
You know that he lied about doing religious work so that he could go play golf and you rewarded him with the best round of golf he'd ever played in his entire life? God says, yeah. Why? Because he can't tell anybody about how today went. (laughs) When the will of God threatens your lifestyle, are you going to change your life? Or are you going to change the priority of God in your life? When the will of God threatens your lifestyle, are you going to change your life or change the priority of God in your life? Jesus is a threat to my position, the religious leaders said. He can't be real. They said, he's a threat to my comfort. He's a threat to my lifestyle. He's a fake. We have to kill him. And if we're not careful, each of us is capable of doing the same thing. We can say, Jesus calls this a sin. He can't be real. Jesus wants me to give. He's a fake. Jesus wants me to serve the marginalized and the outcast. That can't be what he meant. And if we're not careful, we can let our opinions and our preferences and our ideas and agendas take precedence over the will of God in our lives. And for some of us, that's political. So when demeaning somebody who disagrees with us politically takes precedent over loving them the way God does, we are being blinded to the will of God. Or maybe, maybe it's financial and the church just wants my money. And there are a bunch of greedy people and that's all they ever ask for is my money, money, money. And I'm not saying that no ministry or pastor has ever cheated somebody out of their money and been dishonest. But what I am saying is that calling the church greedy has often been the refuge of someone who's struggling with personal greed. For some of us, it's moral. We'd rather avoid the people in our lives that call us out on our sin than deal with the truth they're trying to share with us. And it's a danger that all of us are susceptible to. The religious leaders were looking at God. but They couldn't see Him because they were blinded by their preferences. And I just want to ask you this morning, is there anything that's blinding you from seeing God today? Maybe it's political. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's moral. Whatever it is, don't let something you know is wrong blind you from what you know is right. Verse 25, some of the people who lived in Jerusalem, they started to ask each other, isn't isn't this the man that the religious leaders are trying to kill? Here he is, he's speaking in public, and they say nothing to him. Could our leaders possibly believe that he's the Messiah? But how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he'll simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he called out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I'm not here on my own. The one who sent me is true, and you don't know him. But I know him because I come from him, and he sent me to you. Then the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Many among the crowds at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? Now when the Pharisees heard that the crowd were whispering such things, they got a little uncomfortable. They didn't like that very much. And they sent the leading priest, the leading priest sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus. But Jesus told them, I'll be with you only a little longer, then I'll return to the one who sent me. You'll search for me, but not find me, and you cannot go where I'm going. And the Jewish leaders were puzzled by the statement, where's he going to go? 
Where's he planning to go, they asked. Is he thinking of leaving the country and going to the Jews and other lands? Maybe he'll go and teach the Greeks instead. They didn't understand what he meant when he said, you'll search for me but not find me and you cannot go where I'm going. Then on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowd, anyone who is thirsty can come to me. Anybody who believes in me may come and drink. For the Scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from His heart. When He said living water, He was speaking of the Holy Spirit who would be given to everyone who believes in Him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into His glory. Now, remember the context of this festival of shelters. This is about remembering how God had provided. They needed manna from heaven. It turns out we need the one who came from heaven. They thought they needed water that God would provide, but it turns out that God is going to provide springs of water that will burst forth from within us. In a very real sense, Jesus isn't celebrating the festival of shelters. He's fulfilling it. He's telling us that God is going to provide in a new, in profound way, not just for our earthly lives, but for our eternal lives. We don't just need bread. We need the bread of life. We don't just need water. We need water that will burst forth for eternal life. That living water is available to each of us today. There's a helpful note that says Jesus is talking about Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Christ, I'm going to ask you a question today. Uh, Has the flow of the Spirit felt like a refreshing spring to you recently? Or has it felt more like a clogged drain? If the latter is true, I just want you to consider that maybe, just maybe, your personal preferences are blinding you to the will of God. Now, if you're here today and you haven't decided to follow Christ, here's what I want you to know. The Spirit is ready to burst forth in your life. Right now, the Spirit is ready to burst Burst forth in your life. The Spirit will need no convincing. No, let me get back to you later. Let me think about it. Let me check my calendar. Let me see what I've got going on. Let me discern if you're worthy. The Spirit is ready to burst forth in your life. The only thing that you need to do is realize that you need the Spirit. Say, I've tried to quench this thirst on my own and nothing works. And I've continually been disappointed and more and more thirsty. To say, I'm not okay and I'm not okay with that. To say, I'm not good enough for God, but I am good enough to receive His gift. And some of you need to hear that last part. I'm not good enough for God on my own, but I am good enough to receive His gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. In Romans 3, we've heard that verse. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's true. On our own, none of us are good enough for God. But that's not where that thought ends. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely through the redemption that comes in Christ Jesus. The whole mission of Jesus on earth is to enable us 
to have the same relationship with God that He has. I want to say it another way this morning for you. This is a picture of two best friends. They're in the same class at school, and one day they came up with a devious plan. They convinced their parents to let them get the same haircut so that their teacher wouldn't be able to tell them apart anymore. That's a pretty cool plan. And does anybody else think that's awesome? Because I love that. I don't think it's an accident that Jesus tells us to have a childlike faith. Because only somebody who understands the world as well as these two would understand what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 3 when he says, in Christ you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Listen, there are two kinds of people in this world. And Jesus was talking to both of them in John chapter 7. To those who know they're good enough for God, He says, be careful that you're not going blind. And to those who think they'll never be good enough, He says, that's exactly why I sent Jesus. doesn't matter if you think you're good enough. It doesn't matter if you know you're not good enough. Jesus came into the world to give us all the same haircut. Let's pray.